Welcome to the Nehemiah Collective Podcast, where we help rebuild what's been broken in the Christian imagination and rediscover what it means to have a faith filled with wonder and live in a kingdom full of possibility. In this episode, my conversation is with Sarah Morrison. Sarah is an author, a mother, and a dear friend. She's learned what it means to embrace her emotions for the holy and sacred part of her that they are. And in this conversation, she'll tell us more about that journey. So let's dive in. I'd love to know, Sarah, the joyful woman who wrote a book about tears. (laughs) How does someone get to a place where they write a book about tears? Yeah, so I grew up a really emotional kid. And I was, I realized from a pretty young age that that wasn't a very safe, like, way to exist in the spaces that I was existing in. And whenever I was in first grade, my my first grade teacher wanted to hold me back from going into second grade because she didn't think that I was emotionally mature enough to go forward into the next grade. And the interesting thing about that is that my Sunday school teacher was also my first grade teacher. They were one and the same person. Oh, and so, funny. yeah. And so I, I grew up in the Bible Belt. I grew up um, mm-hmm. outside of Houston and it was a small enough town feel, even though we were in like the suburbs of Houston to where church lives, and I guess if you want to call it like public lives, um, Mm -hmm. they co-mingled quite often. And yeah, I was taught from a very young age that emotions were not safe and they made the adult Christians around you really uncomfortable. So I just grew up trying to suppress that side of myself quite a bit. And that continued into, into my adulthood. I conservative college in Texas. And the emphasis in that kind of evangelical context was always head over heart. And the only sort of context that you had for the heart was to equate it with badness or fallenness. And so that just continued to encourage me to prune away the really emotive, passionate sides of myself. Mm. But then I got to a point where after my husband and I both graduated, we left and moved to North, Northeast Ohio and became a part of a church revitalization or a church plant, if you want to call it that. And when we did that, I was faced with five years of sorrow and suffering. And there was no longer any option for me to ignore emotions. There was no way that I could do that any longer because there was no other way for me to make sense of the suffering that was happening and working out my through the lens of emotions was one of the more helpful things to me in that really difficult time period. And so that's where my book, it was written through the lens of the sorrow of ministry specifically, but hopefully it's more relatable to a wider array of just struggling and things just not making sense in this life and being able to make better sense of the nonsensical things by crying. Mm-hmm. What I know we've talked about this before, but why do you think it is that the maybe evangelical world was so averse to emotions? Because like I told you, I had a pastor who had a sign in his home that says emotions have no intellect. And I've only recently learned in the last few years through therapy and my own set of suffering circumstance. That's a horrible thing to hold on to, especially when you're hurting. Where do you think that comes from? 
And then my other question I'll ask again is how do we break that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I wish I could pinpoint like exactly where it, it comes from. And I'm sure a lot of it is intermingled with the the sort of things that Jesus and John Wayne, the book speaks mm-hmm. about with just this really masculine Christianity that for whatever yeah. reason doesn't have room for emotions. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, I think that a lot of it comes from like a misreading of, and I wish I could remember the exact um, address of this verse, but the verse in Jeremiah that says um, the heart is deceitful above all else. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just like a really big misreading and misunderstanding of that idea that our hearts can only be deceptive and it can only be fallen. And that's just not true because humans were, created before the fall presumably adam and eve had emotions before the fall i think that is safe to assume and most of us would probably be okay with assuming that for sure and um unfortunately somewhere along the way we just have gotten tongue-tied and and tricked into thinking that it's a sign of weakness to show our emotions and there might even be like some misogyny in there too where we kind of view emotion as a more feminine aspect of humanness and so we try to retreat away from it but the way that i think that we break out of it is by actually being honest with ourselves about what the our bibles say yeah and being honest whenever we see sorrow in the bible and when we see individuals in the bible who are experiencing sorrow to be realistic and to be to look at it really earnestly and authentically that what is happening in their hearts is not inherently sinful. Their reaction to external circumstances is not it, it like inherently sinful. When Elijah is on the mountain after being pursued for however long, like he yeah. him saying, God, please kill me, yeah. was not met with God saying, Okay, I'll kill you. <laughs> he was met with some rest and he was met with some food. Yeah, And I think if we could just have a little bit more gentleness with ourselves whenever we react to our external circumstances, if we could give ourselves that same, the, the same kind of gentleness that God is actually giving us, but we often don't think that God is giving us that kind of tenderness. Yeah, we've really honestly been given a father who has no time for who we really are if he doesn't want anything to do with our emotions. And that's terrifying yeah. to me. Yeah, exactly. Was it hard to overcome that, like, I don't know if it was like a feeling of shame or did you feel bad for needing to give in to those emotions during that five-year period? Like, how did you learn to just be like, no, I have to feel these things without feeling Mm -hmm. like you were violating that sense that you grew up with? Yeah, I think a lot of it was helped, Unfortunately, by the fact that like a lot of that time of suffering in that five-year period, really lonely. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like a relearning for myself of what emotions were without like this audience of a lot of friends or like family or support system. I, I was forced to really just talk through it a lot with myself and with a handful of like very close friends and my husband. And so I was, I guess I was given the opportunity to explore these things in circles where there wasn't really any shame to experience because it was already a really close 
intimate relationship. I think I also just worked out a lot of it in writing. And I do remember being hesitant about sharing a lot of my writing at first because it just did feel too sad and it felt too, like, just too real in some ways. Yeah. It's almost always been met by really positive, or not positive, that's probably the wrong word, but by solidarity. Yeah. That's really what. Yeah, that's really what you want when you're writing about sadness is you don't want people to say, oh, that was so good. You want it, you want people to say, I felt that too. <laughs> yeah, that's really, yeah, you don't want someone to be like, it was so good how you talked about how depressing you, how yeah. depressed you were. <laughs> you're like, no, did you, that resonate? Because what you're trying to do, it's almost reading the things you have written. It opened up caverns that I didn't know existed in my heart mm-hmm. and actually gave me space. And so I was like, oh, I became more human by reading what you had to say. And it sounds like that solidarity of the human experience is what you're after. Yeah. Like, a, that was a great post on depression. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm not about, well, uh, some people are really wonderful writers who write in this style. But for me personally, I just don't want to write three steps of how to not be depressed. Right. Or like why your Bible says be encouraged or something like that. I don't want to write that type of of content. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I hope that writing and just talking about tears, I hope that it just gives us all a excuse, for lack of a better word, to explore Jesus's own humanness. Because I think that Jesus's tears are doing just what we're talking about. Whenever yeah. we read about Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus or um, weeping at the walls of Jerusalem or mm-hmm. um, when he's having what appears to be a panic attack or an anxiety attack in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like when we read those things, like Jesus is essentially extending his hand to us through time and space and giving us the ability to take hold of that hand and say, wow, like Mm. Jesus went through it and I'm going through it. And I'm not happy about either of those things, but it feels good to not be alone. Yeah. That's so good. And I'm glad you said that because our Bibles tell us that Jesus was the most joyful person that ever lived and the man of sorrows. And so to me, that creates this paradigm or room in between both where we see him weeping and angry and happy and sad and panicked. I I just love that you make it, you made the point that Jesus showed us the fullness of human emotion and he came to show us the truest way to be human. And so for us to divorce our emotions from our experience, is to not follow his example, which I feel like is what you were saying. Yeah, exactly. That's really good. And we've talked before, but what I wanted people to know is you're actually an incredibly joyful person (laughs) and a happy person. And I think, again, you can get mistyped either because you wrote a book called A Theology of Tears or because you say you're emotional. People assume that means that things are always dramatic. Actually, what I find in people like you who've learned to embrace and receive their emotions is you actually can feel things at greater heights and depths and more fullness. Do you feel like people misunderstand what it means to be emotional? Yeah. And I think that's one of the, one of the things that like makes me more like self-conscious about being really emotional or like showing emotion. I probably, I feel like I don't often really show emotion outwardly that much, but I can talk a whole lot. And so I think that what makes me the most insecure about like oversharing or anything like that 
is just being seen as just too much. Hmm. Just being, because for example, with what my husband and I went through at our church, he went, he experienced it in a completely different way than what I experienced. Now, our experience was the same, but our realities were completely different. And not one is untrue. We both experienced things. We just reacted and internalized them completely differently. So it's hard for me to, you know, stand next to my husband, who is incredibly stoic and steadfast. And me be like crying my eyes out. It's difficult because it makes me feel like what I'm experiencing isn't real. Mm. But it is. Mm. And in a lot of ways, you need both people that are more like my husband and people that are like me. Yeah. who people who can be the movers and the 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 stamp, steadfast like steamrollers moving forward moving ahead and you need the people that are feeling the intense depths of life and mm. expressing those things and yeah. more than anything my husband and I need each other like we are yeah. the types of people that need each other and we balance each other out quite nicely mm. i think that's really good so what if someone's going to listen to this and suddenly be like I, that's my story. I was told emotions are bad. Where's like the first step you'd point them to learning to embrace those in a healthy way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the first things you can do whenever you're relearning to love your emotions is just paying attention to your body because your body is going through the emotions, whether your mind is or not. And so like your body is experiencing the weight of your circumstance, regardless of if you are allowing your mind to get to those points. Mm. And so I think that by just listening to your heartbeat and the rate of your heartbeat or paying attention to the swelling tension in your shoulders or whatever it might be, it could even be like chest pain or something like that. Like, just paying attention to the ways that your body is sending up red flags and saying something's going on. Mm. And whenever your mind is able to like physically understand and recognize like there is something Mm -hmm. going on, Mm -hmm. then you can pause and you can say, okay, what is it? And begin to parse it and begin to examine and explore what that might be. Because I think for me, at least for so long, I wanted nothing to do with my emotion and so I ignored my body for years and years and I'm just now relearning how to pay attention to what my body is saying about my circumstances right now Mm. and sometimes that even just comes out in letting myself cry yeah yeah that's really good and I think it's amazing too because it's pointing to the fact that it's all interconnected your body is telling you something about your emotions and we're not just souls inside of useless bodies, but we are like human beings all interconnected. And so to divorce any of those things is to divorce yourself from the full human experience. Yeah. Like I, I don't think that Christians have a hard time saying, wow, all, the way that the rods and cones in our eyes receive light and understand color is so amazing. Or the way that our immune mm-hmm. system works is just, I can't believe God made it that way, or he's so creative. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, we can't always make the connection that though that our bodily, like mir- miraculous, like ways of functioning are connected to our spirit and our soul and how we function and, and, and live intellectually as well. That's so good. So then 
switching gears to kind of the questions that I ask everybody, when you look at the landscape of Christianity, especially in America right now, if there's one thing you're like, we've got to reimagine this, what would that thing be? Yeah, I wish we could reimagine what practicing lament looked like. And I don't mean practicing lament as in allowing ourselves to be sad when we're suffering. Practicing lament in that like our Bibles have given us so much language to talk about sorrow. And we should be doing that in and out of season. Mm. And something should be said about the fact that the majority of the book of Psalms, the the biggest genre in Psalms is lament. Mm. And so that to me, along with countless other stories throughout scripture that talk about suffering, that to me is saying whether or not we are experiencing a period or a season of suffering or sorrow in the present, we ought to still be working those muscles of lament, whether or not things are going awry in our lives. And I think whenever we do that, when we give ourselves space to to practice that sort of sadness or somberness, maybe it's a better word, we can become more comfortable with our emotions and we can become more comfortable with the idea that suffering will elicit an emotional response. And so whenever we are able to lament, not just when times are bad, but also when Mm -hmm. times are good, it helps us to exercise those spiritual muscles and it helps us to to be, whether it's us that will end up going through something, God forbid, tragic, or whether it's our neighbor, it helps us to be empathetic and it helps us to practically love those that are around us. And so I think if we could just reimagine what it looks like to lament and what it means means to lament in and out of season, I think that we would be in a far healthier place emotionally as Mm. American Western Christians. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to reimagine and even think there's a maturity that comes with doing that. And like you said, it increases your empathy, your sympathy, and even your ability to help others understand their emotions. Because our American culture says, just pursue happiness, run away from the bad things, numb yourself out, distract yourself to death, and we end up short-circuiting, and you're inviting us to stay long enough to admit something has gone wrong and find that it doesn't actually make us harder to be around, but bigger and more full human beings in our souls. So I, I think that's beautiful. So on the other side of that coin is the question, what's a misconception? that you think has really done some damage to the way that we follow Jesus. Yeah. And I think that we've already talked about this a little bit, but I think one of the more damaging things with regard to this this topic is that um, we don't view Jesus as fully emotive. And so whenever we don't see him as experiencing life on earth and experiencing the full like range of human emotion, then we're not, really seeing him as fully God and fully man. Like we, we put a lot of stock obviously into seeing and saying that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But when we refuse to see how he wept with those around him and wept for the city that he loved, when we refuse to acknowledge those things, we come up with this really like sterile 
like complacent Jesus. Mm. And it doesn't tell the full story about what he, how he experienced life on earth. And when we allow ourselves to really see Jesus as fully human, then we are allowing ourselves to see ourselves as fully human. And so if we are able to give Jesus permission to weep Mm. at Lazarus's grave, then we can finally give ourselves the permission to weep as well. Yeah, I feel like I have this tendency to not actually let the story I'm reading become a real story, like Mm. to ask better questions like, why is Jesus crying? Am I acknowledging that he's crying? Would I cry in this situation? Mm -hmm. We tend to just think everything he said was in the monotone, like boring Sunday (laughs) school voice, and we don't invite his humanity into the stories we're reading, or at least that's me. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's a very fair assessment. And I think like, I was thinking about this just the other day, how we're really eager to point out Jesus flipping tables, Mm. but we're not really eager to talk about him weeping. And so if we want to validate the angry parts of ourselves and maybe the harder parts of ourselves without also validating the softer, more tender parts of ourselves. Goodness sakes. I'm going to have to sit with that one. (laughs) That one hits a little too close to home. I got to, yeah. Okay. I know what I'm doing later. This one is switching gears a little more personal, but I'd love to know as you look back at your last six months uh, or maybe even two years, because it's been a weird two years, what's something you've realized about yourself that you didn't expect to learn? I think I've realized that through really sitting with my emotions, through really letting them do the work of spiritual formation in me, that they are like inextricably tied to resilience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've just found that as I've let my emotions express themselves, as I've given them space to communicate to me what um, what is actually going on around me, I think it's given way to a resilience that I didn't know was possible. Mm. And I think that also ties really nicely into the idea of our weaknesses making us strong. Because I've, for so long, I viewed emotions as weaknesses. Mm. And now that I'm finally just letting them exist in the way that I believe God has intended them to exist within us i've been able to see the fruit of strength in that and that's not to say that like i haven't been like a couch potato on my worst days like not able to get out of bed that doesn't mean that um everything has just been smooth sailing and that i've magically been given joy through yeah this process but it means that i'm finally able to just recognize like the work that god is doing and that um my sadness isn't a hindrance to the work that he's doing in me and it gives me the ability to just more fully accept the ways in which god is working and bringing out goodness in me that's so beautiful even as we've now gotten to talk twice i really do (laughs) i do i have a really strong sense of there is a comfort with who you are that i feel like just comes like interacting with you i feel very just like safe and at peace and it feel i feel really like we walked into a room and you moved all the boxes out of the way in order for there to be space. And so I imagine people who actually get to live with you get to experience that all the time. I think that's a gift. Thank you. That's really kind. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Nehemiah Collective Podcast. We're a nonprofit that exists to help followers of Jesus rebuild their imagination, to rediscover the beautiful faith that we inherited the day that Jesus walked out of that tomb. If you want to go on your own journey of deconstruction, rediscovery, or reimagination, we're here to help. We provide resources mentorship, spiritual direction, and more. Reach out to us at the Nehemiah Collective on Instagram or the Nehemiah Collective at gmail.com. We would love to start helping you rebuild something beautiful.